Father, you're so good to us. You allow us to come together. We anticipate being blessed with you. You said it were two or more gathered in my name, that you'd be in the midst. And so we claim that precious promise tonight. For your blessings upon Charlie as he shares with us what you've already shared with him. Upon the children and Laura as they go to study, the dearest minds about to be open their hearts tender toward you. Thank you for loving us and allowing us to share in the blessings of the day. In the name of Jesus. Okay, Laura and all the other little kids. <laughs> oh, honey, you're gonna get it's gonna be rough. Oh, it's gonna be Okay, um, turn to the book of Jude. It's right before Revelation. If you're, not, if you're unfamiliar about where Jude is. How many knew that there was a book called Jude in the Bible? Okay. Um, I honestly can't remember hearing a sermon on the book of Jude. But, um, so we'll, we'll stand and we'll read uh, verses 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning, that, or this evening, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to what Jude has to tell us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, who is Jude? Well, he tells us he's a servant of Jesus Christ. And that's how maybe we should identify ourselves as a servant of Jesus Christ. He's our savior. He's our friend. In fact, he should be more than our best friend. But a servant has the attitude of a servant always does what the master wants them to do. God the Father wants us to do His will. How often don't we? He is a servant, as I said. He's also a brother of James. And this is kind of interesting because our my Sunday school class, we're studying the book of James. 
And James also identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. And James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. The thing that James and Jude do not tell us is that they were half-brothers of Jesus. They were sons of Mary. And, you know, most times we uh, uh, remember when uh, um, Bill Clinton was elected president. Shortly thereafter, we found out he had a brother. No, it's Bill. It's the Carter guy, Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter? Okay, one of them guys. But we found out that he had a brother. Billy. Yeah. Um, but it seems like when there's a famous person, all of a sudden you find out about their relatives because they want to be somebody too. We never see that with James nor Jude. They never tell us that they're the half-brother of Jesus. Yet they were. They didn't use their position as, wow, hey, I'm a half-brother. You know, I must be somebody. But they didn't do that. Jude is writing to those who've been called by God, loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. Have you been called by God? Have you felt his great love for you? If so, then we're Christians. And we are kept by Jesus Christ. Um, kept in this context means to watch over, preserve. Uh, Jesus watches over us and seeks to preserve us uh, to keep our faith and to build it up. So, We've been called by God. He wants to keep us. And he does. The reason for Jude's writing is that he was eager to talk about the salvation which Christians all share. When was the last time you sat down and talked about salvation with other Christians? What's that? I said this morning. This morning. Okay. <laughs> Sunday school class. Okay. <laughs> Outside of church. <laughs> Not many of us, do we? Um, we rarely do that uh, in our Sunday school lessons. We talk about different things that we should be doing, uh, things that we've done. We talk about history. But seldom do we talk about the salvation that we share. Um, we talk about hunting, fishing, football games, the state of the country, babies. But we don't talk about the one thing that binds us together. Um, Jerry Bridges, one of my favorite authors, he suggests that we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And he, in fact, he wrote a book on that. And it's amazing uh, the things that we could remind ourselves about what the gospel is. Every morning, to remind ourselves what is it that Jesus Christ did for us. Um, I'd like to read something. Uh, I've been, for the last 11 months, uh, I've been meeting with Martin Luther in the morning. 
and he's got a lot of great things to say. You probably all heard of uh, Martin Luther. Um, and today's, uh, today's discussion was about Christ's mission on earth. <clears throat> and Peter says, therefore, your minds must be clear and ready for action. Place your confidence completely in what God's kindness will bring you when Jesus Christ appears again. The gospel tells us who Christ is. Through it, we learn that he is our savior. He delivers us from sin and death, helps us out of all misfortune, reconciles us to the Father, makes us godly, and saves us apart from our own works. That's quite a bit. Um, gee, here I thought that uh, all I had to do was say, I confess my sins and I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That's the gospel. <clears throat> Martin Luther seemed to think there's a whole lot more to, to the gospel than just that. So that's what Jude wanted to talk to Christians about. He says, I wanted to talk to you about the salvation that we share. Instead, he says, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith. Contend means to engage in a contest. As an athlete contending in the Olympics. Verse 3 signifies to contend about a thing as a combatant. To contend earnestly. The past two Sunday nights, we've been viewing DVDs on Islam. Uh, their beliefs, their lifestyle, their faith, their goals. And if there's one thing which has stood out, at least to me, is that Islam wants to destroy Christianity. They don't want to merge they want to annihilate it completely. Even sadder is the Chrislam movement. Um, it's, a con it's an interfaith movement that seeks to marry Christianity with Islam. Sad to say there are Protestant churches throughout the country, even in Michigan, which are doing this. They're softening John... 14 verse 6, which says, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The gro this, this growing trend is a natural slide to a common ground of peaceful coexistence. There's a movement saying that other religions are as valid as Christianity. Unfortunately, the way many Christians go about their ordinary day, that's probably true in America. Um, but if one were to go by the Bible and live Christianity the way it was originally taught, Christianity and all other religions become like night and day, with Christianity being the day. What are we to do about that? Jude urges us to contend for the faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 
For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul is compelled to preach. It's almost like he doesn't have a choice. He says, I'm compelled to preach. Wherever he goes, he has to preach. Of course, if we read the book of Acts, we found that that led to a lot of problems. And some few stonings here and there, uh, beaten, left for death. Uh, you know, just these minor little encumbrances to preaching the gospel. No big deal. Uh, but he was compelled to preach. We're told by Jesus to preach the gospel in Roscommon, in Michigan, in the United States, and in the world. But I feel that one reason why many of us, including myself, do not witness is because our faith is too shallow. We do not know the basic doctrines of the faith. I've got two questions for you this evening. Just two, okay? Well, there might be a few more questions. <laughs> they will relate to the first two. And there are probably some other questions. But they also relate to the first two questions. So there's only two questions. First question, what do you believe? <clears throat> might be too general. Yeah. Might be too general. But... It got you thinking, didn't it? I hope so. More specifically, what do you know about your faith? What do you know about salvation? What do you know about God himself? What do you know about justification, sanctification, <laughs> glorification? What about tithing, communion, the tribulation, the rapture? Many more questions about what you believe. I'm not going to cover any of those tonight, so, you know, don't worry. I'm just asking the question, what do you believe? Many of us know many things. We know what food we like best, what pie, ice cream, cookies, uh, things like that. You also know what foods you don't like. Now, many of you know that I don't like onions. If you didn't, I'm telling you now. Spread the word, please. And, you know, at, at these potlucks. potlucks. Leave the onions out. Leave the onions out. Yeah, sure. <laughs> oh, oh, that's so boring. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I agree, Charlie. I agree. Make it I can remember reading the book of Exodus, and the Israelites are always grumbling, aren't they? They wish they could go back to Egypt and eat onions. And leeks. And leeks, yeah. And I say, what is, like yeah. what is wrong with you people? You want to go back and eat onions? At least, if you're going to go someplace, at least go for the strawberry shortcake or, you know, or pumpkin pie, even the wild game dinner, but don't go back for onions, my goodness. Ah, no wonder Moses had, had problems with them. But, what do you know about your faith? If we gave you a test right now, could you list eight 
things about your faith that you know? I'm not going to give you the test either. Um, how many of you knew that the Bible was full of doctrine? Okay. Doctrine sometimes, it almost seems like it's a four-letter word among Christians. Ugh, doctrine. Ugh, you know. Uh, oh, that's terrible. I don't want to study doctrine. Um, but what is doctrine? See, I slipped in a couple questions, didn't I? Uh, doctrine is a teaching or of, of it's a teaching of instructions, something that's taught. It's also principles or a body of pr principles and a branch of knowledge. Doctrine is a system of beliefs, dogma. In short, doctrine are principles which are believed upon. In order to combat the threat of Islam and any other attack upon Christianity, we must know what we believe. If we don't know what we believe, how can we talk to uh, Muslim people? How can we talk to uh, Mormons, Seventh-day Advent, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, atheists? If we don't know what we believe, how can we talk to anybody about Christ? My second question, do you believe, let's see, let me rephrase that. Why do you believe the things you do believe? What do you know? Why do you believe it? Do you believe things uh, just because the pastor believes them? Or your husband, or your wife, your mother, your father, your children, brothers, sisters, neighbors, the cashier at the Glens? Why do you believe the things you believe? Um, why do you believe the Bible is God's word? Why do you believe you're a sinner? Why do you believe Jesus is the only way for salvation? Does it matter what we believe? And does it matter why we believe it? The two go together. This is why Paul wrote to the Romans, the Corinthians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, to Timothy, to Titus, to Philemon. This is why James and John and Peter and Jude wrote their epistles. It's unbelievable, but these letters were written to the first century church. And already, false teaching was creeping into the churches. And this is why Paul and John and James, Peter, why they wrote their epistles. They were refuting false teaching that crept into the church. Um, today, you and I, we should know what we believe and why we believe it. Many mainstream denominations have turned away from their own statements of faith. Uh, they no longer believe that the Bible is free from error. They no longer believe that sin is still sin. It's because they've forgotten that all second important question. Why do you believe what you believe? 
I want to spend the next several minutes talking about eight primary doctrinal statements. These are eight doctrines which distinguish Christianity from all other religions. These are eight statements which any denomination, if they believe those, we can have fellowship with them. There's some that think that just the Baptists have a corner on God's truth. Or maybe it's the Methodists, or maybe it's the Lutherans, or the Episcopalians, or the Evangelicals. But these eight doctrinal statements, if a church, if a believer, no matter what denomination, they believe these things, they're Christians. They can, we can fellowship together. Now, obviously, when we first become a Christian, we don't have to know all those things. But as we start growing in our knowledge and wisdom of Christ, we, we should start gathering some things together of, these are things I believe in. These things are a hill to die for. If we read about the martyrs of, you know, of Fox's Book of Martyrs, I forget, uh, it starts, you know, I forget how soon they start writing about the, the martyrs, but it goes up to, I don't know, 17th or 18th century. There's another book called By Their Blood, which takes up the story about the martyrs to this present age. I looked that up online, and the latest um, copyright, I think, was last year. It talks about martyrs, and people are dying for their faith, even while we speak. Those martyrs died for a cause. They knew what they believed, and it was so important to them that they were willing to die for it. Now, I won't die for pumpkin pie. <laughs> uh, some of you have had my apple pie. I won't die for that either. It's not that important. But there are some things that are important enough that I would die for. And these are them. First is the Trinity of the Godhead. We must always start with the existence of God. Did you ever notice the Bible doesn't set out to prove the existence of God. Instead, it declares God. In the beginning, God. It states there is God. It doesn't try to prove it. It states it. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, that's one of the dead guys. I like him a lot. Um, he says, well, in teaching about the Trinity, be careful. Take your shoes from off your feet because the ground whereon you're standing is holy ground. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity is the most mysterious and most difficult of all biblical doctrines. No human being would have thought of the doctrine of the Trinity. We worship one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Westminster Confession states, There are three persons within the Godhead, 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He also said in Matthew 28, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The Trinity. We have to believe who God is. He's not Allah. He's not Buddha. He's not any other God. He is God. And we can discover him in the Bible. The second is the inspiration of the scriptures. This is necessary because if the Bible contains errors, how can we trust it? If it contains errors, well, what, what in here is an error? What is truth? How do I know? If some of it is false, well, I can't believe the rest of it either because what can I believe? So, an inspiration means God breathed. It means that God spoke through, there's 40-some authors, he spoke through them, gave them the words to say, yet he didn't alter their personalities, he didn't alter their writing styles. Uh, we see different styles in, in the Bible. Paul has one style. For most of Paul's epistles, the first half of the book is doctrine. The second half is how to put that doctrine into practice. Um, James, he kind of messes everything up and he talks about practical stuff. <laughs> and John, uh, John was an old man when he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And this is where an onion comes in handy. Because John kind of, he goes back and forth. He'll talk about something, then, then he'll jump over to something else. Then he'll come back to it. But he goes into deeper detail. It's like pulling an onion skin. They're so thin, aren't they? Um, anybody ever try to count how many there are? <laughs> if you have nothing to do now. <laughs> but that's the way John writes. John peels back. And just when you think, you, oh, I, I understand what he's talking about, he pulls back another uh, onion skin. And he goes deeper. The personality of each writer is there. But each writer was inspired by God. Um, this is very important. Um, there's a lot of discussion about translations. Is, that act, is it an accurate translation or not? Um, this is my theory, that if God is the author of the original text, don't you think that he is powerful enough to take biblical translators give and give them enough wisdom and direction by the Holy Spirit 
to translate the Bible accurately. I think he does. The problem is that there's counterfeits out there. Um, Janet has been looking for a new Bible. And for some odd reason, we decided to use the computer and, and look up reviews of some of the Bibles. It's been interesting what we found. Um, the Message Bible and the New Living Bible. We found lots of reviews. Negative. Very negative about them. Mm -hmm. One reviewer called the, the uh, message a blasphemous uh, blasphemy. Um, now, it's very important when you're doing research that you sometimes you need to do some research on the reviewer. Well, I did some of yeah. on Southern Baptist, their reviews yeah. of all these things so, and other reviewers. You know, if you find one one reviewer says this particular version is terrible. Find out who he is. Well, he liked the King James. Yeah. Um, so, but it's important that we research. God has put into our hands the computer, the internet. We can do lots of research now that we weren't able to do years ago. Um, just today, uh, oh, before I get to that, uh, Janet was thinking of getting the new NIV Bible. Uh, copyright last year or no, something. This year. This year. Um, but they've tried to make it genderless, uh, politically correct. I don't know about you, but my God is not politically correct. Uh, God has one standard, His. And we all have to conform to that or, you know, we're out of, out of uh, his will. Um, but Janet found something today and blew me away. A study New Testament for lesbians, gays, bi, trans transgender, with extensive notes on Greek word meaning and context. And I had to read more. What version, what version was that? It was... Uh, it was uh, the new... It's the New Testament written by somebody. Yeah, I forget. Yeah. But it... Uh, for this, this, for is, this is the world's first study Bible for the gay and lesbian community. Deep in the shuddering guts of that religion known as Christianity is a rich and troubling history of persecution, bullying, the singling out of those the church professes to be anti-God, such as gay, lesbian, bi, and transgender people, all built up from the foundation that is God's word, the Bible. Only it isn't, the, the review says. There is no spiritual foundation for this persecution. No anti-gay passages in the Bible that the church professes there. There have been many mistranslations. Persecutions, bullying, but none of this is set down in the original languages in context of the Bible as God's way. Um, there are false people translating the Bible today. We need to be careful. So if you're looking for a new Bible, do research on it. Find out who the people are. Is it a, is it a translation or a paraphrase? The third thing, the virgin birth of Christ. This is necessary for Christ's sinlessness. 
if Jesus had a human father, then he's just like us. He's like me. Scary thought. Um, we're sinners. So if Jesus had a human father, he too would be a sinner. Um, God has decreed that sin is inherent in every person. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Since Jesus was without sin and born of a woman, this is my interpretation. You can disagree with me. Um, but lately there's been a lot of uh, scientific knowledge about DNA, uh, chromosomes, and all this stuff. And they found that you know different traits um, are passed from father or mother to their children. Um, how many of you have looked at a baby and said, oh, he looks just like his father or his mother or grandma or grandpa? Um, yeah. I always... Uh, I always say that, no, the baby looks just like they look like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Themselves. Yeah, they just, you know, they look like a baby. Um, my mother, or Janet, always told me that uh, the gene hair is passed through your mother. My mother was 89, she wasn't bald. <laughs> um, but it came to me that, well, I, since Jesus was born of a woman, and it says Jesus was sinless. Maybe there's a spiritual gene that is passed from Adam to his son, to his son, to his son, and it's passed through the fathers to their children. The gene for sinning. Spiritual gene. Don't ever find it through a uh, microscope. But... The fact is, Jesus was born sinless. Mm -hmm. He was born of a virgin. Uh, Jesus is not only the second person of the Trinity, he is also God-man. He's fully God, he's fully man. He had to be fully man in order to represent us by bearing our sin on the cross. Number four, Christ's sacrificial death, necessary for man's salvation. John, 1, 9, John chapter 1, verse 9, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, the world. Paul says in Romans 5, 6, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul also says in Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. There had to be a sacrifice. God set, up, set that up in the Old Testament, that there has to be a sacrifice for sins, and it has to be unblemished. No defects. And I don't know, I know quite a few of you in here, but I don't know you personally, intimately. 
but I know me. And I'm a sinner. God would not accept me to die for my sins. That'd just be another dead person. But Jesus was sinless. He, and so his sacrificial death is necessary because only he could die for our sins. Number five, Christ's bodily resurrection. This is necessary for God's confirmation of Christ's death as payment for man's sin. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, we can read where various people brought somebody back to life. Um, Elijah did it. Elisha did it. We read in the New Testament where Jesus brought some people back to life, most notably Lazarus. Um, in the Acts, we read that... Uh, I think Peter brought a woman back to life. Paul brought a young man back to life. But notice in all of this, there was somebody interceding with God to bring that person to life. The person themselves did not do anything. They were dead. Jesus brought him, his own self back to life because death couldn't keep him. He was sinless. He died for sin. But because he was sinless, he rose from the dead on his own power. Um, the book of John, or 1 John, this is what John says in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked at, our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. reason John wrote that is because in the early church, there were false teachers coming in who said it wasn't a physical body, it was a spiritual body. Uh, and John says, no, I was there. I heard him. I looked at him. I saw him. You ever notice you can look at something, but you don't see it? Mm -hmm. You have to go back for a second look look deeper at it. That's what John is getting at. He says, I heard, I saw, I touched him. I know that that was a body that came back to life. Number six, Christ's second coming. This is necessary for fulfillment of all prophecy. Jesus predicted his return in Matthew 24 and 25. If he doesn't come back, he lied. Basically, that's, you know, I mean, if you make a promise to your kid, do they try to hold you to it? Mm -hmm. Do they remind you of your promise? Mm -hmm. Jesus promised he's coming back. This is a physical coming as well. Acts 1, verses 10 and 11. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. He said, what are you standing around for? He's coming back. Go do the work. He's coming back. He promised that he would. And everything that he promised, 
that we've seen happen, he was, he was correct. He was truthful. Number seven, man's total depravity. This is necessary for dependence on God's grace alone for salvation. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Romans 3, 3 says, There is no one righteous, no, not one. Jerry Bridges suggests that even on our best days, Try and think of it. The very best day you ever had, in God's sight, that is unrighteous when compared to the righteousness of Christ. Um, so, you know, all we have to do to convince ourselves that we're sinners is to review the last 12 hours. Um, you probably can find some sin in there. You didn't go out and murder anybody or um, go 95 miles an hour on the expressway or you know down through town or anything. But chances are we sinned mm -hmm. today. Um, total depravity. God had to pull us out of that. Then number eight, the new birth. This is necessary for man's redemption. Redemption is entirely of God. Salvation is all of grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. There's nothing we did to earn salvation. God did it all. Um... The longer I, I, I live as a Christian, the more and more I realize that. That there is nothing I've done. It's all grace, all from God. We must contend for the faith, both within the church and without. We need to know what we believe, why we believe it. When we are solid in our faith, we can withstand the fiery darts of the wicked one. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 10-18, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take, up, take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's important to know because we think Islam is the enemy. He's a tool of the enemy. Satan is against God and he will use any and every means he can, including another religion, including uh, false Bibles, including well-meaning churches. Scary. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. 
and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the wicked one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. To paraphrase a very famous American, Christians may cry peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war has actually begun. The enemy is in our midst. They are in our churches. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that Christians wish? Is life so dear or peace so sweet? as to be purchased at the price of renouncing our Savior and Lord. Forget it, forgive me, forgive us, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but give me Jesus, or give me death. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We have the victory in Jesus Christ, but we still have to fight. Paul, finally, Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have, kept, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Are we compelled to contend for the faith? Are we prepared to fight the good fight? Let's pray. Our Father, we live, we live in precarious times. Many of the churches are having questions, seeking answers. The enemy is using every means to destroy the church. And in some ways, he's succeeding. And we pray, Father, that, that you would go through this nation and first with each Christian, renew our lives, renew our commitments to you. And then we pray that you would, that the Holy Spirit would go through the land that a great awakening would occur. That men, women, teens, children, lives would be turned toward Jesus Christ. We know the final victory is yours. We also pray for strength to win the battles. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.